Welcome to devmode.fm, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107. I'm Patrick Harrington from Mildly Geeky in Boston. And today we have on Carson from Big Sky Software. How you doing, Carson? I'm doing great. And we also have Ben Croker from Put Your Lights On. How you doing, Ben? I'm also great. Hi. So we have you on today, Carson, because we wanted to talk to you about a little thing called HTMX. So if you were out getting your dog fitted with a pair of nudicles and the person next to you who's also getting their chihuahua fitted with some nudicles looked to you and said, hey, what is this HTMX thing? What would you tell them? So I think I would say that HTMX is a way to add Ajax and WebSocket support to your web app without writing any JavaScript script, just using pure HTML attributes. And that seems to be the, the, the best way I can boil it down. So HTML with attributes that enable Ajax. So is it, it kind of providing sort of the functionality that fetch the the fetch api provides or, or what is it doing yeah you can you can think of it as a an attribute an html attribute me- based mechanism for implementing fetch or something like that maybe a, a jquery i sort of came out of the jquery world so issuing a jquery get or post would be sort of the perspective that i would come from but yeah okay so that's the big difference though is that this is html attribute based in other words you can put some kind of funky looking attribute into your html and you don't write any javascript and and this just does the rest for you magically somehow is that kind of yeah that's that's right so you just write plain html you don't write much scripting there is a way to do some scripting as well Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, it's all attributes very similar to when you create form in plain HTML and you tell it to post or get from a particular URL or similarly when you create a, an anchor tag add an href to it so it's just it's attributes just like that and then you can encode various behaviors using different attributes sort of different behaviors that you want as far as the swap goes what the it expects HTML back from the server so it's different than the way most people use fetch or other Ajax apis in that what comes back is actual HTML rather than JSON so the swap is an attribute where basically it will it will swap the the contents of an HTML tag with whatever it receives back from the endpoint? Is that what it is? Yeah. So just to make it concrete, if you put, and the, the attributes all begin with HX dash, mm-hmm. um, so similar to other JavaScript libraries. So if you did an HX dash post equals slash clicked, for example, uh, what that would do is it would issue a post request to the clicked URL and then take the content that came back from that, the HTML content that came back from that, and swap that into the DOM. And there's a bunch of attributes that control how that swapping occurs. The biggest one is HX swap, which you can say swap the outer HTML or the inner HTML or put it before this element. You can also target a, a different element. So you have a lot of flexibility as far as what you can do with that HTML. But I think the important distinction from other JavaScript approaches to implementing Ajax is that you're 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 really working with HTML. You're not taking JSON and transforming it the way you would most other JavaScript libraries. So for anyone who's familiar with Alpine, for instance, or, or even Vue to some extent, this is similar to those in that you're using custom attributes to, yep. to do the thing. I guess my question for you would be, like, what happened? Like, why? why what is the advantage of doing this? Why hmm. do I not just write this in, in JavaScript? Or was there a girl named Java that broke your heart when you were <laughs> yeah. a teenager and you just refused to write JavaScript from then on? Or, yeah. or what's the deal? I've always hated JavaScript. Um, <laughs> and... 
That's actually true. I've always hated JavaScript. I mean, I was, I'm, I've been a web developer for a very long time now. So I started writing web apps back in 1995. Uh-huh. And uh, I've gone through probably five hype cycles with JavaScript. And I'm just, I'm a little bit of a contrarian by nature. And I, the the original library that HTMX is based on was called Intercooler. And I started that way back in 2013. And I wrote it because I just, I didn't want to write a lot of JavaScript. I felt mm. like what I was trying to do was pretty simple and I liked web development <laughs> and I could get my head around that. And uh, at the time, the big library was jQuery. Some of the other libraries were starting to come along and get more popular. But what was the, what's the Google library that kind of fell apart that they had where you web did everything? Like Polymer? Angular. Angular JS. Oh, Angular. Angular? Ang- the, even before Angular, there yeah, was... Angular's uh, been strong, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so in any event, but I looked at oh, all my that. UI was, yeah, yeah, that was Yahoo though. Gwit, Gwit. Do you guys remember Gwit? Does Gwit still Gwit? exist? I have Gwit. no idea. Oh, Google Web Tool or, yeah, Web yeah, something. yeah. It was a create, anyways, it was all, there were a bunch of bad ideas back then. And so I, I was using jQuery like most people and just writing, you know, little snippets here and there to make things a little more dynamic. And I finally, I had adopted this idea of just taking HTML for actually performance reasons. I, I was doing this really big DOM manipulation. I remember the project I was on and it was just taking forever. JavaScript was taking forever to execute. And I found out you could just slam HTML directly into the DOM and it turned out that was way faster. <laughs> and so I did that and I kind of wrote this sort of one-off function that eventually grew into intercooler, which was a similar idea to HTMX, but was very reliant on jQuery at the time. And I found that I could implement, I was more of a backend guy. I, I don't, I wasn't a, certainly not a pure front end guy. I was maybe full stack developer is what what I would say, but I wanted to, I couldn't afford a front end guy at the time for the project I was on. And I I wanted to be able to do the whole thing. I didn't want that much interactivity. I just wanted a little bit. And so I started pushing this intercooler library and ended up releasing it back in 2013. And that grew pretty, you know, pretty steadily. Got a lot of, got a lot of shit for it <laughs> on like Hacker News and places like that. So Reddit just hates all my stuff. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've, I, there's some pretty... I, uh, one of the guys... So I had an alert system set up for whenever Intercooler was mentioned, which isn't very much. It's a pretty small library. But uh, I got an alert and I clicked through to Reddit and someone had asked um, if you were going to design the worst JavaScript library possible, like what what features would you include in it? And one of the... One of the, the I think if, I don't know if it was a top response or not, but in my mind it was. It was it was just I would just clone Intercooler JS, <laughs> and I was like, oh man, I read it, brutal. Uh, so, but you know, it's all right. It's a different way of doing things for sure. But it came out of that that mindset of more traditional web development, more HTML focused and uh, trying to keep things maybe a little simpler than a lot of the complexity that I saw. I, I love it though. I love it. I said, I said, do you, did you write this because you didn't want to write JavaScript? And you're like, yeah, I, I hate yep. JavaScript. <laughs> like, yeah. I think I've said this before, but it's ironic. I've had to learn an awful lot about JavaScript and write an awful lot of JavaScript in order to avoid writing very much JavaScript. Right. But you have, <laughs> but you have no choice, right? Because that's the other than now you've got a choice. You do have WebAssembly. Yeah. Is it choice that you could use in browser if you wanted which to. Is, so, which is brutal. Have you looked at WebAssembly? Yeah. So, yep. Crazy. So I've been playing around with it. And Rust is actually a really good language if you want to okay. use that to build yeah. stuff. 
in WebAssembly. It is still kind of, you know, I mean, it's a little bit cowboy, old west kind of stuff. It's not, it's not the easiest thing in the world and it is still evolving. But man, it's nice that there is going to be an alternative in the browser for first party executable thing that you, yeah. you there. So if you really hate, if you just can't stand JavaScript, you could probably rewrite HTMX in whatever in Go. Well, Go would in the runtime would be too big. You could rewrite it in Rust. Yeah. If you wanted. Yeah. I, the one thing, the last time I looked at WebAssembly, it looked like they didn't have a compatibility library, like JavaScript strings. Yep. And like you didn't really have a compatibility layer. Do they have that now? Where I don't think so. I mean, I think okay. you're still kind of on your own. And there are other things that you're a little bit dependent on. On JavaScript on the other end, on the receiving end in the browser. Okay. So it really is still more suited. So for instance, I don't want to get too much off of a tangent yeah. word. Yeah, we're intense, but it's fine. So for instance, we're recording this right now using Zencaster is what we're recording. It's actually running WebAssembly and it does that to encode the MP3 recording. So it does that in the browser. Okay. But that's typically what you would use WebAssembly for is something that is super CPU intensive right. that could potentially be a lot faster if it was running native code or native speed code. But, right. but anyway, let's get yeah. back. The to other thing is no one will ever give you a pull request ever again if you move to WebAssembly because, you know, <laughs> who the heck would do that? Yeah. Well, no, I mean, the, OK, so the pull request would be in Rust. So you would get, you know, Rust enthusiasts might give you pull requests for it, you know. A fraction um, of a fraction of a fraction. Yeah. All right, whatever, man, Mr. Skeptic. Uh, it may be a feature. You won't be dangerous with PRs. Listen, man, you thought Tailwind CSS was a terrible idea when no, it came I out. No, so. pylons or whatever it was called. Yeah, Tachyons. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> That's great. But so, Ben, we recently did an episode with you where you talked about Sprig, this very craft CMS specific thing. And you ended up basing that on HTMX. So why did you do that? And, you know, like, what are your reasonings for doing that? And what did it offer you? For what you were trying to do. Mm -hmm. Well, I should be clear. I I only built Sprig because HTMX existed. Oh. So yeah, so I was I was kind of watching the progress of Laravel Livewire, uh, which is a kind of framework for for Laravel that allows you to load components dynamically, and it has both a kind of backend side that plugs into Laravel and is written in PHP. And then it also has a front-end side that listens for user interactions on the front-end and, and then some middleware that kind of matches those two thing, two sides up. And I was thinking at the time, well, this would be great to use in Craft because while Laravel use and Livewire uses Blade templates, uh, in Craft CMS, we use Twig. And wouldn't it be great to have this for Twig so we can write interactive components for Craft and keep all of our templates in one language, i.e. Twig. Um, but at the time, what was missing for me was this kind of front-end aspect. I didn't want to build the whole thing. Caleb Porzio has actually built, you know, this entire framework. So he's he's done the JavaScript side of things, the PHP side of things. And I wanted to be able to do this with a, a craft plugin, ideally, and not have to take care of the front-end. And I was looking around for a while, and, and HTMX was something that I, I came across. It was recommended to me. And at the time, which I talked about recently on, on the last show, show, but it was at version 0.0.3. So I kind of dismissed it immediately um, because I just thought this is far too far too new and young of a project. But then I came back to it and realized that actually it's the successor to Intercooler, which is 
actually very well established. And this is basically Intercooler 2 with a new name. And then then I realized that this is like, and this was like in June, and I think HTMX was released in May of this year. So it was literally just, you know, had been put out there. Carson had just cut a 0.01 release, and I think it had a different name originally, and then renamed it to HTMX. And I thought the timing of this could be really interesting because yes, it is a, a young library, but maybe maybe I can contribute to it and maybe I can help the development of it, etc. And from there, uh, I decided this would be ideal as the front end side of things for Sprig. Uh, so Sprig actually is the craft plugin and one of the, or the only dependency of Sprig, obviously beside, besides craft CMS, is HTMX. And that's great because it means that I can focus on the PHP library or plugin and maintain that. And there's somebody else who's very smart and very experienced in this, taking care of the front end side of things. So, so HTMX Carson obviously is the the author and maintainer of that library. So they work they work excellent together. And so this is interesting. So you used HTMX because you didn't want to write any JavaScript and Carson wrote HTMX because he didn't want to write any JavaScript, <laughs> right? I mean, that's pretty much what's going Absolutely. on here, right? Yeah. Okay. I, I, okay. I think what it comes down to is 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 we, we collect our, <laughs> our snippets of code, right, that solve the problem for us. And when those yeah. snippets get too big or we just find ourselves repeating ourselves too often, we, we you know, we package it up and turn it into something. And <laughs> whether we release it or not is up to us. But I think that's kind of what we've both done in this in this situation. So I, I do have a question, though, re- related to intercooler. So yeah. why didn't you just come out with intercooler 2.0? Like, why did you decide that, you know what, this thing is, I'm just, I'm calling it something else, you know? Like, yeah. what was the reasoning there? The primary reason is that because it was intercooler.js, people, I, I felt like it, uh, people compared it to other JavaScript libraries. Mm. And I didn't, so I didn't, I never liked that because, you know, people, oh, another JavaScript library, how many stars does it have? Okay, whatever. And, you know, it would be compared with something like Vue or React. And so you were sick of the Reddit trolls is what it was. I, to an extent, I think. Yeah. Um, I just wanted it to have a distinct identity. And I really, once, I, I didn't understand this when I first got in, the, the intercooler JS, but what I came to understand is that, and one of the things that's very different about HTMX is it's a, an extension of HTML. Mm-hmm. It's not a JavaScript library. Yep. It is a completion of it's. It's sort of, in my opinion, it's how HTML should work. Mm. Why? Why should only button clicks and form submissions be the events you can respond to with HTML? Why should you only be able to post with forms and not with anything else? Why should you have to replace the entire page rather than a component within the page? So I, I just I, I developed the sense that it, it's a different conceptual idea than most JavaScript libraries. So I wanted to move away from the .js world. Yeah, and the other thing about it is, again, it, it is at least for, in my opinion spiritually in line with Alpine. Because both both Alpine and HTMX are kind of they're buddies with HTML. They're like, you know what? I want to work with you, HTML. Like that, you. I want to be buddies. Whereas most of the JavaScript frameworks, like Vue, React, you know, even Svelte, they kind of give HTML the middle finger. They're like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't want anything to do with you. Right. You know, I. 
I, I manage you, you know, it's not the other way around, you know? Yeah. I also, I, you know, one big difference between HTMX and some of the other options that are out there, like Livewire is I really wanted it to be contained on the front end. I wanted you to be able to use what, I didn't want any middleware. I, I didn't, we already have a good abstraction for that. HTTP, you know, we, we've, we have a lot of experience in using HTTP and HTML to communicate data down to a browser. And I didn't, so some some other inspirations around the time I was building Intercooler were PJAX, um, which came out of the Rails community. It was sort of an AJAX mechanism that inspired Intercooler JS and also TurboLinks. And my problem with both of those libraries is that they required a lot of server-side knowledge of what was mm-hmm. going on on the front end. And I just didn't want that. I, more and more, I came down to this idea that HTML just, the, the problem was HTML hadn't been completed. They just stopped for whatever reason. Um <laughs> at, you know, anchor tags and, and forms and then put, put JavaScript in there and people did all sorts of crazy stuff to make other stuff happen and just seemed like nonsense to me. I was about to ask if you ever have any anxiety, like what if you meet Tim Berners-Lee one day and you're like, oh, I'm the creator of HTMX. And he's like, really? You're going to you're gonna try to grab the X name? And I yeah, mean, if, if you're right. saying that he fell short, then I guess you're not, you're not concerned hey, about that. I registered that name in 2020. So, you know, <laughs> HTMX. He had his way. chance. Oh boy. Had his shot. Yeah. Tim Berners Lee even remotely involved in anything anymore? No. I and I wouldn't blame him for what's happened. I, my, <laughs> I don't understand the politics, but I guess I think w- we should all show up to his house with with these signs and just start screaming and picketing outside his house. Jeez. My understanding is that the W three C. What is there's the W3C and then there's the other group and there's a working group or whatever. Yeah. Working group, yeah. yeah and W3C kind of just stopped working functionally when they, I've never understood why they work on what they work on. Cause to me, like you can't issue a post unless it's a form. Well, let's fix that guys. Like, you know, go and read <laughs> Felding's dissertation. <laughs> you should be able to. Well, what, it, what it feels like to me, and this could be totally inaccurate cause I don't know the inner workings of the working group organizations. But the way it feels to me is that a lot of the people that are involved with this are involved with it from a very academic point of view and maybe aren't in the trenches, you know, actually building stuff and knowing what needs to be done to to build. And, And in all fairness, the range of things that people are building is is huge, right? So they, yeah. you know, you can call yourself a web developer and you can be building anything from a simple brochure page to you know some kind of a massive application. And I get it, like it's a huge range. Yeah. But at least to me, it feels like a lot of the people that and they're doing a lot of they're doing excellent work. They're doing a lot of hard work on it, but it feels like they're not in the trenches doing this daily stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, Maybe you're a little out of touch with what people need. Well, I think also it's just not very sexy. Like no one, I don't want to say no one, but uh, it's, it's, it's how to, (laughs) it's it's like, how do I make HTMX sizzle? You know, Mm. oh, it's what web development was back in the day. Well, okay. Why would I want to, well, because of rest and Hadios. Well, okay, man. (laughs) How many, how many job postings ask for HTMX? Well, you know. And that's a problem. That's the other thing is if you look at the job postings, if I were advising someone that was coming into web development today and they were doing it from the point of view that they wanted to make money, I would say become a React developer. And I know like the hair on the back of your neck just like went up and all that kind of stuff. I'm just talking about. I agree with you. If someone came to me and said, well, hey, look, I want to be employable, I would say, I would absolutely say React, no doubt. But then you could also say, but if you wanted to maintain stewardship of your soul, maybe learn learn the fundamentals. 
first? Yeah, you get, you know, you have to learn the fundamentals of web development. Every we all suffer. I think, you know, for example, my generation suffered from the fact that we didn't grow up during the CPU revolution. So, the older guys, guys who are about 10 years older than me, they have a better understanding of computers because for them it was more concrete. By the time I got to computers and could intellectually understand them, they were, you know, it was already one gigahertz chips and Unix was pretty baked. And so it was just, I didn't grow up with it the way that some of the other guys, the older guys did. And and similarly with web development, a lot of people come in now and there's just no context, you know, like what's, what is HTTP? (laughs) What is HTML rather than just, you know, this kind of janky GUI description language we have to use everyone. Well, there are two ways to look at that though. And so this reminds me of a conversation I had with a, a girl I was friends with who was an exchange student from Japan. And I had like... I had a mild infatuation is the wrong word, but I, I liked the Japanese culture, right? Sure. So like samurais and, you know, all this, like yeah. I just thought it was really cool. Yeah. And I was talking to her about it. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's really, that's really neat. Like your civilization has been around for thousands of years and you've got this great history and, you know, ours is so new and it's all, you know, there isn't much depth to it and that kind of thing. And she's like, yeah, that's true. But, you know, our culture has been around so long. It's also caused a, a buildup of a whole lot of really bad ideas. You know, right. so, so I think it does cut both ways that, yes, it's great to have this grounding in this experience, but also sometimes having a fresh new outlook on things can be can be kind of useful, I think, you know? Yeah, definitely. And you saw that the, the thing that I always had to give the JavaScript kind of waves that we went through. By the way, I've always noticed that JavaScript usage tends to peak with market peaks. I don't know why that is, but <laughs> that appears to be a, some sort of crazy psychological situation. Mm. But the one thing that I had to give the JavaScript community was they were, because the HTML spec and was not moving, they were, they almost had to do it that way. Mm. Um, you know, right. and they were, they you know, were using a, a website now to, to record audio, you know, across the world. And that, that right. wasn't coming from HTML. You right. Know? It's um, crazy. So it's the same from my perspective where, you know, I used to do iOS apps. And the in web development was kind of like this, you know, it's the the little brother development or whatever. But these days, like if I was going to do a cross platform app, I would one hundred percent build it with React Native and Expo. Like it's just so much so much better than maintaining all of these separate code bases. You know, depending on what it's doing. So, but I I don't know. I I think it's really interesting the way that things are evolving. But I also think it's interesting that you decided to write a JavaScript library because you didn't like writing JavaScript. And it is, you know, it does kind of remind me. Like we're big fans of Tailwind CSS. Yeah. It does kind of remind me of that because, you know, so one of the, when I first started getting into front end frameworks, the big mind shift from my point of view, when I started learning Webpack and React and Vue and all this kind of stuff is that JavaScript was now the center of the universe. Right. Whereas in web development prior to that, HTML was the center of the universe and you added in a little CSS, you added in a little JavaScript and then you made your thing. But man, if you're doing anything in these front end frameworks and Webpack, and that kind of thing. All of that is an afterthought. Like they're like the the HTML is an artifact of right. the, C- the JavaScript, and the CSS is an artifact of the JavaScript, and it's just a a total mind move in terms of where that locus is. You know what I mean? Yep. And it yep. looks like what you're trying to do is bring it back to where HTML is the center of the universe. Yeah, I think that at least on the front end, and there's some good, you're going to have to generate HTML anyways. So you're going to have to know HTML. Will when, you though? Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. uh, you, have you been to websites where everything is a div? 
I know, I know. But uh, I think, you know, one, one of the motivations with HTMX was I, I, at the time, or Intercooler at the time, was that I was writing my backend in Rails. And I like Rails. I think Rails is a great web development environment, pretty small now. But uh, I didn't want to, I, w- once you introduce a lot of JavaScript on the front end, there's a huge amount of pressure to adopt JavaScript on the back end. Mm-hmm. Um, because why well, have multiple languages, especially now that JavaScript has a you know good runtime for the back end. And I, so I just, I, I don't like that pressure. I want people to, I think people should be able to use whatever tool is best for the job on the back end. So, you know, if Python, if you're doing some sort of AI related stuff or big data stuff, Python has a lot of good libraries for that. And it's, it would be unfortunate if you had to have separate developers to do a at least a basic front end, because the JavaScript was so complex on the front end. I've had that discussion. So we actually were specking out a project recently where yeah. the front end, it's gonna, it, it is going to make sense to do the front end in React Native and Expo because the target is iOS apps. And okay. in this case, the fact that we can generate a website from uh, React Native Web is kind of like a bonus, but it's not mm-hmm. really the goal. Right. But I was, I was having this discussion where, well, okay, you could have some could hire like one agency that was just really good at JavaScript, have them do the front end and the back end. But really, it shouldn't matter because there should be a neutral API that the front end communicates with the back end. And you should be able to write the back end in whatever language you wanted. And I would rather have someone that was really good at yeah. building scalable, scalable back ends in Go or PHP or whatever it is. Right. And develop a really nice neutral Rust. API, whatever, whatever it is. Right. And and then rather than having front end developers who are really good at React Native and were like passable at doing no server side stuff, I would much rather have separate teams that were really good at what they were good at and have them meet in the middle of this neutral API. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. And HTTP and HTML is that API from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's the that's the native API of the web. We're using JSON a lot now, but it's not it's not a it's not a hypertext, and we can talk more about why that matters later. I have a, I got a confession to make, Carson. Yeah. And this may change your opinion of me. That's you fine. may not want to associate with me anymore, but I'm, no, I'm kind of having a little bit of a love affair with GraphQL, and I really sure. am enjoying it. Yeah, no, I understand that, and I can uh, I, I I can explain. I think I can can maybe help explain why you're in love with it, and it's it's it revolves around the fact that JSON isn't a hypertext and just doesn't fit well with the original model that we used to describe APIs like REST and Hadios. They don't make Do any it. sense. Tell me why JSON. I'm a shallow, horrible person for like no, it's, it's, it's a natural reaction. You can dig up people talking about how they hate Hadios or they hate they hate REST. You know, yeah, th- these these poor API engineers who they get a thousand API request changes per day and uh, they think REST is pointless and all these stupid arguments around whether or not something satisfies Hadios. Uh, and they're right. And the, the the whole point of this, or the whole reason this is coming up is because JSON is in a hypertext and none of this stuff makes any sense outside of the context of a hypertext. Mm. So it's just, it's a very limit because the data, the, your data, your JSON data is dumb. It's just data. So it, it doesn't have the encoding of links and actions directly in the, the content. That's for, that's for the front end to figure out. It takes that JSON package and turns it into something useful, right? Mm-hmm. 
And so it, it's really more like a, a thick client data API in that sense. You're not getting you're not getting a hypertext back from the server. You're getting data, and it's your job to interpret that data and encode it. And as soon as you're in that world, you want the same thing that the backend developers want. You want a very powerful query language, just like backend developers have SQL. You want a powerful query language on the front end, and your your API developers want to give it to you because they don't want to be dragging their API around all creating all these little magical endpoints for specific things. They want to give you an open and flexible API so that you can do the same sort of development that you would have done on the back end in SQL or whatever. And so it makes, to me, it makes, I think that GraphQL makes a ton of sense. If I was going to develop a general API, I would definitely be looking at that. There are issues with it. The primary one is that I see is security, which is that any power, the problem with GraphQL is any power you give to the developer, you also give to a hostile end user who can just fire up the console and start firing off graph QL queries. And so you have to be really, really careful there in a way that you don't have to be really careful when you're on the server side. Because on the server side, you're in a trusted computing environment and you can just give the developers raw SQL access, right? But an interesting rub to that, and we we discussed that recently when we're talking about GraphQL. An interesting rub to that is that if you do have a breach into an SQL database or yeah. my Postgres or whatever, yeah. because of what you're talking about, all bets are off and you have access to everything, right? Yeah. yeah. Whereas if you're dealing with something like GraphQL, you have to solve that access problem up front. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you do. And so you have to think a lot more about security. And but I've, I have to say, sometimes when I've talked with the guys online about it, it's always hard online because it's just not a very, the, the pipe isn't very wide, but a lot of them don't seem to understand just how crazy the security constraints can get. Because you, you you really need almost row and column level security constraints uh-huh. for mm-hmm. a lot of GraphQL things yeah. because a person, you know, one person might be able to access a given column and a given row and another person, person might not. You have to check that access. Um, or forget even about the fact that it could be sensitive data. Right. And just let's just think of it from the perspective that if you have this open API, yeah. someone could DDoS your server by just like sure. swamping it with API requests, you know, for right. instance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I've you know, that's one of my arguments for HTMX in general is that you can give your device if your developers can create the HTML on the server side, they can access your data store directly in whatever the native language is. And you don't have to worry as much. You still have to worry, but your worry is at the at the user level rather than kind of at the row column level. Let's get back to HTMX because yeah, I, and it's my fault. Like I'm, I'm veering you off <laughs> uncharted territory and then, you know, whatever. But let, let's talk about things that HTML, problems that HTMX can solve for a front-end web developer that you might otherwise either reach for a framework or you might right. write a bunch of JavaScript code. So like one example that comes to mind for me is something like load more. So if I've got yeah. a list of articles and I want to load more, right. is that something that HTMX can then just handle the rest for me? Yeah. So basically the way in HTMX, you would develop your web app sort of the traditional way. You might think, you know, just web 1.0 with anchors and all that sort of stuff. And then you would annotate your load more button with a request that goes out and fetches the next page. So when you produce that button, you would know what the next page is. So you would just encode it in the URL most likely. Just like you would create an anchor tag to like actually physically go to the network, not physically, but to go to the next page using a traditional web navigation. And uh, we do, there's a good example of this. If you go to htmx.org slash examples, there's a click to load example, which is exactly that. Um, I'm clicking to load the click to load. All right. And you can sort of see what the code looks like. There's a button 
and an HX get, which gets the next page. And then it replaces, kind of targets a specific element to replace. Right. Um, so as properties on the button, you give it yeah. a URL, which is where it gets the data from. Yeah. And then you give it an ID number of the element that the result you get back from that URL should replace. And, and then people click on the button and HTMX takes care of the rest in terms of it goes out to that endpoint, it grabs the stuff and it swaps it in. Yeah, exactly. That's it. And uh, there would presumably be another button there if there were more pages that would say load more. And the neat thing is if I'm using this, I st- just like with Tailwind, I stay in my .html document and I yeah. write it I'm not opening up a separate JavaScript file where I'm writing the JavaScript here and I'm loading it in the HTML and I'm reloading. Does it work or does it not? Or I've got, you know, maybe I've got a bundler that's got to run. Maybe I've got roll up pack that has got to rebuild everything like this is I just stay in my HTML document when I'm working on this right that's right and there's no, there's no build <laughs> pipeline or anything like that it's just right. some straightforward attributes on a button <laughs> so if you like tailwind CSS from a HTML centric point of view and if you like things like Alpine I think you're inherently going to like HTMX in terms of because I mean it just philosophically they seem very similar to me yeah I agree with that I think that they're both they're all three of those tools are focused on HTML. They're sort of HTML centric libraries. Mm -hmm. And so absolutely. Um, I I haven't used Alpine or Tailwinds yet. I mean, I've played around with both of them, but I haven't used them in anger yet. (laughs) One other library and especially hearing as you came from the real side of things is stimulus. And I'm, I mean, this seems like it's very close to stimulus in a lot of ways where you're able to through, yeah, attributes, talk to the server. It seems yours might be more concerned with, getting HTML back and replacing parts of the DOM based on that. Right. Can, can you talk a little bit more about what are the differences and, and maybe... I don't uh, know if stimulus yeah. well enough to say, unfortunately. Okay. I, I could so maybe I just give a quick overview because the way I see HTMX and I, what really appeals to me about it, and Carson kind of already mentioned this, that it completes one of the missing features of HTML, which is that anchor tags, for example, you put a href on an anchor tag and you unclick the entire page refreshes. And what HTMX allows you to do is uh, you could think of it as like an extra attribute on an anchor tag, which is maybe, well, we already have target. So if we thought of target, you can by default itself, right? And most people will be familiar with underscore blank. And you could imagine a HTML spec in which you could say the target is, and you type in maybe hash and the ID of an attribute or an element in the DOM. And that would then tell the browser that rather than doing a full page refresh, just make a, an AJAX request to this URL that's specified in the href and swap or whatever the result of that is, which will be HTML code, swap that into the target element that we've specified in target. And HTMX basically takes care of fetching those HTML fragments from other URLs. And then the second part of what HTMX does really is, is swaps them in accordingly. Mm. So there you can define how it should be swapped in. And there are multiple ways of doing that. You can set targets. And I think that's, for me, at least a difference between stimulus, or even if we're talking about Alpine.js as well, and, and HTMX. Because with Alpine.js, if you want to make an Ajax request, I mean, you have to inline some JavaScript code, uh, right. probably use the fetch, right. the fetch API, but then you need to polyfill that etc. HTMX takes yeah, care you, of 
really... the Ajax request and the swapping it back in. Yeah, because you might really use Alpine and HTMX together. Like they're they're brothers, right? I mean, there's no yeah. reason why you couldn't use them both together. Yeah, yeah, I agree they complement each other. Yeah, the, the, like people ask me often, um, if if HTMX is so great, should I use it instead of instead of Alpine JS? And really, that's the wrong comparison to make because they don't do the same thing. They work very well together. And Carson's also in the early stages of developing another library underscore js which is more comparable i think to alpine js it allows so you it, to would it be fair mm-hmm. to make the generalization and to say that htmx is sort of axios for html i don't well know. even <laughs> e- even with axios even with axios not. you have to write the rules right Right it, right. it definitely, it definitely, you don't need Axios because HTMX takes care of the Ajax requests for you. So you could say that Axios is included within HTMX, for example. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of a simple way that you could describe this to somebody. So if we were getting nudicles installed on our dog and someone asked us about it, we could give them a quick answer. And it seems to me that you would use HTMX for whenever you need interactivity with data coming from a backend somewhere. You need some kind of interactivity on the front end, but you don't want to go crazy with the JavaScript framework. You just want to stick in HTML and it kind of is bringing the dynamicism to HTML. Is that fair? Is that is that like the scope of it, Carson? Yeah, I would definitely say so. I guess there's different ways. Like, what does it do? Well, it issues AJAX requests with attributes in your HTML. Well, what does that mean? Uh, well, you can do stuff like infinite scrolling and active search and things like that now with just pure HTML. So that that's a little bit more concrete. And then on the more abstract side, I you know I would tell someone it's a it's a completion of HTML. It's it's removing the restrictions that HTML unfortunately has had on it for decades now where you can only respond to certain events you can only issue certain types of requests you can only replace the entire screen so That's, it's kind of bringing html into the new millennium without yeah. throwing it out because these javascript frameworks like we talked about they looked at html and they're like this sucks like we can't get the interactivity we need so we're just going to throw this all out and we're going to re-implement everything it, they were right about that yeah. you know yeah, they're right about it. So it sounds like what you're trying to do is say, no, 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 let, let's not throw everything out. Let's see if we can pull this into an age where we can get some dynamic content, but without throwing it out, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that, again, that touches on the whole REST Hadios idea. Why is why, why is HTML worth saving? Who is this EOS person and why do we hate him? I don't understand. <laughs> why, hate, why does everyone hate Hadios? It's a bad acronym, particularly these days. But Avengers 2, I think, was, it was the villain. Yeah. I feel like um, this, I don't know why but anything with hate in it i feel like this is going to be canceled and replaced with something else like they're going to rename uh, this thing something but it, it it's a real unfortunate acronym. what is it what is it what is hadios what is that okay yeah hadios what does that mean um <laughs> let's see if i can explain this well hadios means hypertext as the engine of application state that's what it stands for and that sounds a little crazy but the, the way i like to talk about it is so when you go to a web page, just a web 1.0 web page that say has a table where there's some links on the table, you know, that you can go and view the details, say a contact. And then maybe there's a form at the bottom of the page that lets you add a new contact, right? Just a very simple 10 minute UI that someone knocked out. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about that UI, so when that HTML came down from the server, 
the browser doesn't know anything about contacts. It just rendered the HTML and that HTML encoded the application state in it, in that the data, that is the contact data that came down, included in it all the actions that were possible to do on that data as HTML. So mm. you have an anchor tag, you can click to view the details. You have a form that lets you create a new contact. All of that was encoded in the HTML and the browser doesn't know anything about it. So the hypertext is encoding the application state. There's not a client-side model of stuff that is living on the side and that knows, okay, with a contact, I can render this client-side template and it knows about all these endpoints. And so the the hypertext itself is sort of encoding all the information about the data that comes down. So it's, it's kind of object-oriented if you think about it, because the data and the actions on the data are all coming down in sort of one package. And that's that's what hypertext that's what what Hadios was when Roy Felding was describing describing it. That's what's different about the web model. Most network architectures before that had thick clients, and the thick clients would ask for dumb data, which is what JSON is. This is what we were talking about earlier when we were remarking that GraphQL is so useful. It's dumb data. The data comes down, and it doesn't say anything about what you can do with that data. All that stuff is encoded elsewhere. Uh, in the application. So that's what Hadios is. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it sounds very, very familiar because when we were talking to Caleb Porzio about Alpine, he was talking about Alpine being a rugged quote unquote framework, meaning that if you went in and edited the DOM, it wouldn't break anything, right? Because the DOM is the source of the application state. So you've, I mean, he, I don't know, he may not even know that he's doing Hadios stuff. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. He is. And and so, and then REST was kind of, there, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that comes on when you start talking about REST as far as statelessness and the REST pattern of URLs, which people continue to use. And I think that makes some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of that stuff grew up around this HTML-oriented model. That's when Roy Felding, when he wrote his paper, his, his dissertation on the web and how it was different, he was talking about this. Using REST to describe the web he was talking about, Web 1.0 applications. And then that got hijacked by the the API guys. The API guys, they started off, you guys are, I don't know how old you are, but you probably don't remember this. They started off using XML, which was its own nightmare. Then they eventually moved to JSON and they retained that language despite losing the fundamental aspects of HTML along the way. And some guys tried to, you'll, you'll see some JSON APIs that'll encode links in really bizarre ways that no one ever uses. <laughs> Everyone just writes, they just, they write basically thick client code just in a in a browser environment where they process the raw data and then produce the UI based on some side-loaded logic that they have. Well, I have an interesting quote that I want to read to you, and it comes from someone deeply steeped in the React world. Are you ready okay. for it? Yeah. You ready? You prepared yourself? Yes. Right. This is from Ryan Florence, the author of React Router. Okay. Ryan says, there's a chance, I believe, client-side routing on the web is usually not preferred, <laughs> which is ironic. Might be best for screens where the majority of the UI persists, which is an edge case. Browsers handle page transitions very well. Still working on my thoughts. What do you think about that, Carson? Well, I'd love to talk, chat with the guy. I've got some thoughts on that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, the, the web took off for a reason. There's a, a, a sometimes a terrible simplicity, but there's definitely simplicity to the model that, mm-hmm. that really works well in a disconnected network environment where, you know, you just 
just you look at what was accomplished early on with web, just web 1.0 applications, and it was pretty incredible. So I think we've yeah. thrown a lot of the baby out with the bathwater. We have, we have, and we, we we did it for a good reason, as you mentioned, which yeah. is that the spec just wasn't doing what we wanted it to do. So just think about we're talking about HTML web pages. Web pages are no longer what a decent chunk of web development wants to make. They don't want to make web pages. They want to make web applications, right? Right. So the things that people wanted to build and the the platforms that they could build it upon were kind of out of sync. So they're like, you know what? Screw this. We're going to, just going to build our own thing. But I think you're right that to some extent, the baby did get thrown out with the bathwater because they're like, huh, let's do everything in JavaScript. But you know what? Um, this actually really sucks on mobile devices because they have to do all of the CPU intensive rendering stuff. And it really is kind of janky. They're yeah. like, oh, you know what? Maybe we should move this back to rendering stuff on the server, which is then like full circle to the way it used to be done, you know? Yeah. So I I definitely think that there is some of that. And it's interesting because I like that there's innovation and I like that people are able to build something that doesn't exist on the platform because they think it's a cool idea. Like they could build something like HTMX because they think it's a cool idea. And I like that it is flexible in that regard, but I also feel like the platform itself not moving forward is kind of a big hindrance because it's forcing people to go off and all these crazy directions. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't think HTMX should have to exist. I think this is how HTML should behave in an ideal world. It's It really is just completing the HTML spec Uh-oh. as far as I'm concerned. And you, that's a really interesting point because Caleb had a similar point, which was that ultimately what most people wanted to do was like build a hamburger menu or toggle this to show and hide or relatively simple things where it felt awful to him to go. And this is someone that he used to do lots of view stuff. So he's not just an outsider that doesn't know anything about it. He right. used to do a ton of it, but he's like, this is dumb. Like I, I'm most of what I'm building is not needing this full application framework. I just want to do like some basic stuff. And he decided to bring that into the browser via Alpine. And it sounds like you're trying to do the same thing for pulling in data from external sources into into the DOM. that's right. That's right. You know, you can go and look at the examples page. Active search, I think, is something that every application can benefit from. And it's pretty easy to implement. I mean, if you already have a search functionality, it's a few lines of HTMX, right? Right. Versus saying, okay, well, now you've got to rewrite the whole thing and some framework and you got to render now using some other whatever. It's just, that's to me, that's one approach I like with HTMX is to, you build your app just using the standard web tools in a web 1.0 manner, and then you can add HTMX where it makes sense, where, where there's high value. So you're not just paying the, paying the, uh, price for a little bit of interactivity on your site everywhere. Thing One I- thing that I've really enjoyed about HTMX is that most of the time when you go to to use it, you don't have to rebuild your pages or your application because those will already exist. And sometimes you need to just pull some out and put it into its own fragment or component somewhere. But it's really, you don't have to heavily invest in it. You can just drop it in where you need it, where it makes sense to. And and it's a, a very lightweight library as well. So it just sits there and you you use it when you need it. That's a really important point from my point of view is that everyone is building different stuff. And React was born out of building Facebook, but 
most people are not building Facebook. So, right. you know, and I'm not Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right. My understanding is they built it because they couldn't get a comment to append after another comment in a stream. Like this is, I don't know. I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but you just slam some HTML in there, guys. Well, it may be a scalability issue, right? So there sure. may, yeah. may be issues with doing things at the scale that Facebook does that they really did need something like this to, you know, state management type of thing. And, you know, I'm good with that. That makes sense. But not everyone is trying to do that. So it doesn't make sense for like a company brochure website to be built in React because why? Right. Why? You know, like what are you what are you really getting out of that? But similarly, there are cases where there's certain things I might be building that I might be like Carson. You know, I love your HTMX, but it's I can't. I need more than that for what I'm yeah, building. Yeah, absolutely. So I get that. I get that question sometimes. Okay, what would you not recommend HTMX for? And okay, you're building a, you know, an online 3D game, <laughs> right? Sure. Or something like that, where there's just a huge amount of state and interaction going on. Mm -hmm. Well, HTMX isn't going to be good for that. It might be good for the settings page though, right? Um, for that, for that app, right? Because you maybe all that stuff is super crazy, low level web assembly, and you don't want to deal, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to. You don't want to. Your settings page, you don't want to implement in web assembly, maybe. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like HTMX. It's small enough. It's I think it's seven and a half k now, compressed, and it has no dependencies, and so you can drop it in and just use it in the part of the app that it makes sense. Yeah, and the the web development field is. Gonna Getting so broad. I mean, the broader any field gets, the less one size fits all ever works. And I think that a lot of people fall into that trap. They're, they they look at what's going on in the web development world and they see all the crazy stuff that's being done with React and they see all the crazy stuff that's being done with Vue or Svelte or WebAssembly or all this crazy stuff. But unless you're building something that will actually benefit from it, like just don't use it. Like you're not yeah. you're not missing out on it. It's not that it's it's not that you're inferior in any way. It's just that what yeah. you're building doesn't require it. You know, it yeah. just does. I think that that requires a little bit of confidence, though, that a lot of people don't have, you know, um, and I don't blame them. We live in an, we or we work in an industry that's pretty brutal, right. you know, and you, it's easy to get left behind. And so you kind of have to be a little idiosyncratic or, you know, maybe have enough experience to say, OK, you know, this isn't this, the normal way that things are done, but it's still a reasonable way to do it. And it'll say, you know, I think HTMX saves a lot of complexity for a lot of situations. And that so that's as, an, as a more senior developer, that's what I would argue. That's where I would argue from is, hey, let's just save this complexity for some other part of the app. At um, the same time, though, if right. I had a friend of mine that was coming to me and said, hey, Andrew, I want to become a web developer and I want to make some money. What should I do? I would tell them to learn React. Like they hundred percent. That would be my answer. Yeah, and, and I would say the same thing. Well, but that would be predicated on that they had the mentality to be a, a programmer, right? Because okay. if you're developing sites in React, you need that programmer mentality. If if someone is coming from more of a design perspective, I don't know how much they would actually enjoy that job. <laughs> You know, yeah, but, well, that's a good point. And um, it brings up a feature that, if you don't mind, I'd like to mention, which is HTMX, it, the way I built it, it, it makes CSS transitions really, really easy to use. So a lot of designers, they're familiar with CSS transitions, but then to make that work, you have to be adding and removing classes dynamically. And that can be kind of a kind of a pain. The way HTMX loads content that it gets from the server, it actually pulls the content down, takes all the elements by ID in that content, takes the old attributes in the DOM and swaps them onto the new content mm. by 
ID and then after I think an 100 millisecond delay swaps them back. And so that gives CSS that chance to do a CSS transition. So you can do like throb, you know, you can make something throb or you can make it fade in, fade out, whatever it is. So there's a designers can, and they don't have to think about any of that. They just you just return new code. So a good example, if you if you have a table that you update a, a row in and you want to flash that row, you can put a class on it, a new class on it, and then put a transition between the old state and the new state to have it flash like that. And uh, it can be done purely in CSS as a, as a designer. So you don't, you don't have to get down into the muck and start tweaking classes on elements. So that's, that's an example where that's something that I feel like should be baked into. They, CSS transitions are great, but they require JavaScript. Well, that stinks because most people who are going to be writing those CSS transitions don't want to deal with JavaScript. And so that's it's another example of where we're in HTMX. We're trying to surface technology that's kind of tucked away and can only really get out with JavaScript now. I got to confess, though, I'm a dirty boy. I like getting down yeah. in the muck time. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is America, Jack. <laughs> but sometimes you just want to sometimes you just want to drop in a script tag and be done with it and just yep. get on with your day okay. and, and get the functionality right. you need. But if I could ask a, a question, Carson. So HTMX supports IE11 out of the box, which is fantastic. It means that you know you don't need polyfills and all of this. But I just wonder, because I've, I've contributed to the code as well and it, the library is really well written and really easier to approach but I'm wondering if you miss the more modern JavaScript language features or if you're happy working away in kind of legacy legacy land yeah. how, how's um, that been I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it I, I, I'm, I'm actually a programming languages guy so uh, you know I'm, I'm working on hyperscript now which is scripting language to complement HTMX I've kind of settled with JavaScript with what is it uh, version 5 forget the, what is it ES6 yes ES6 thank you yeah I've kind of come to terms with it and I've developed a style of writing it that I find I can keep my head around and I just test it so I like modern programming languages you know nice closure syntax and, and all that stuff but I just to me it's not it, there isn't that much value to uh, updating the code base and I don't want to get into a situation where I'm like transpiling it or whatever to make it work. So uh, I'm comfortable with it. And there's really only the only place that I really regret maintaining IE 11 compatibility is the the observer, the the ability to watch when something basically mm. scrolls in here. I have yeah. to use an older API for that. And my understanding is that it's not great from a CPU perspective. But there's a there's a newer, more modern API I'd like to use for that. But well, that's really the only place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at some point, you're—I would assume—at some point, you're going to ditch IE 11. Like, okay, are, Carson, are you enabling people? Are you yeah. enabling people that really just—they should just get rid of this damn thing, you know? Yeah. You I, I don't know. It is—it's again as a contrarian. I'm kind of every time everyone says you should take that out. I'm like, eh. Maybe I shouldn't. I don't. I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion on it. I assume someday IE 11 will be disabled by some update by Microsoft. And Would you advise to any of your friends or family that they should be running IE 11? No. No, I would not. It's true. Well, I'll have saying. to think more about that. Be the change in the world you want, Carson. Just yeah, saying. I know. Yeah. All right, so you said you're a language guy. Yeah. Real quick, you had to pick a language that you've written something in that you just really like. And, and I'm predicating this with the fact that all languages suck in yeah. one regard. Like it just, it's the truth. Okay. But if you had to think of a language that you've written something in that you really, that would be your, maybe your favorite language, or you just had yeah. a, an enjoyment in it, what would it be? Go. My favorite language, and this is crazy, is actually Java. Um, Java. I really, I, they, they've never gotten their frameworks right, though. 
like what the web frameworks, they just had that enterprise albatross around their neck forever and no one's ever fixed it. Um, and you know, that's my issue with Java is not so much the language, but if I were to have a job doing Java, the kind of work that I would be doing would be soul sucking. I mean, I would, I would not do it. You know what yeah, I mean? We, call, we call them the Java salt mines. It's just, it's true. It's, it's really unfortunate. The JVM is a great piece of technology, far better than most of the other VMs out there. There's it's, it's I could talk about this for another show actually, but I, I think, I think that I don't, I'm not a huge fan of the Ruby programming language, but I think rails is a really good web development. What do you, what about you, Patrick? If you had to pick one language that you just, you, you enjoyed doing something in, like what would it be? Uh, Python. I, I real I mean, I actually, it was one of my first programming languages aside from C, but that was too low level for me. Python. I love the syntax. I love how clean it was. I've just never been able to get my head around Django or anything that like that for doing web work. Ben, what about you? Um, I mean, I'm a big fan of PHP at the moment because of how much I can do with it. But um, I do have fond memories of BASIC. It was the first mm. programming language that I actually built stuff in. And I was quite young at the time. So um, I, th- I think it is a good language for, for people getting into programming. And yeah, have yeah, that was cool. That was, that was always fun to to use and writing. I loved uh, Visual Basic back in the day. For myself, and this is kind of weird, but I, I actually probably got the most enjoyment out of 68K Assembler. I think is what I got the most enjoyment out of doing stuff in. And it, the reason it's kind of weird is that it is, it's so low level and it's very repetitive. And But there's just something about it. Is There's just something about the almost one-to-one mapping between what you're doing and what the CPU is doing that I just, I don't know. There was something about it I just really liked. I can't build anything practical in it today. No one builds anything practical in any kind of assembly language unless you're doing embedded system stuff. But I just, I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed it. I don't know. Yeah, I'm teaching an assembly class, actually. Um, and so I'm having to learn x x86 64 isn't as bad as x86. So thank goodness right. for that. Yeah. And 68K, like if you were teaching one, teaching 68K would be a wonderful thing to teach because yeah. it's actually very, very clean assembly language. Very clean. Yeah. yeah. It's, it was before the AI took over and came up with optimizations and an assembly language that no human can write as good as a compiler can write. <laughs> right. Well, it's really cool, Carson. I enjoyed talking with you. And it was really fun to, to find out about HTMX, but I think that about wraps it up for another episode of the devmode.fm podcast. Make sure to subscribe. And if you enjoy the show, please write us a review on iTunes. Tell a friend or retweet this episode. We'd really appreciate it. Patrick said he would make this shorter, but he did not. We'd love to continue, <laughs> continue the conversation. Leave us a comment on devmode.fm or find us on Twitter at devmode.fm. For the devmode.fm podcast, I'm Andrew Welch. I'm Patrick Harrington. And thank you for coming on, Carson from Big Sky Software. Thank you. And Ben Croker from Put Your Euros On. (laughs) Thanks. part of the show on Ben Croker high as a kite down in the area. <laughs> I didn't even get my last question in. I wanted to put Carson on the spot and ask him when the 1.0 is coming. Oh, oh man. Thank goodness. I'm going to stop this here so he can talk freely. Here we go. Stopping that recording.